Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way. This is a podcast for serious writers who want to develop their skills in artistry and stand out in a crowded industry by taking intelligent, creative risks. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I hold a PhD in literature. I'm the author of uh, numerous books, and I take a very analytical approach to art making, emphasizing both efficiency and experimentation. It's late at night, and I can't sleep, um, and I have... You know, some whiskey and, um, you know, some Crown Royal is uh, is a great, you know, Canadian uh, rye whiskey. And I thought I would um, record a podcast for you where I answer questions. I had asked people to ask me questions uh, with the idea that in a future podcast I would answer some questions. So that's what I'm going to do today. So all sorts of different uh, questions that have come from you, uh, you know, my listeners, and, you know, people connect with me on social media and, you know, on the interwebs, as they put it. I'm going to ask your questions. Uh, these are the things you've been dying to hear, the best questions uh, that people ask me. So uh, I'm just going to kind of run through the questions and see, you know, how it goes. Finally get to, you know, maybe your question, you know, the thing you've been dying to know. I've got a couple of repeat customers, people who have asked you know, multiple questions, and it's a real gamut of uh, topics here, so I think we'll kind of just dive into it shortly. But first, I want to just say, um, I've got a book coming out this fall, as I've mentioned previously on podcasts, and that, I don't remember if I've said the name of that book, but the book I've got coming out um, is called The National Gallery. Uh, it's kind of an unusual title for the book, I know. Um, I should maybe just say something about the title, which is that I don't think many people know this, but uh, years and years ago, I was in a bar with Derek Balyu, uh, the um, concrete poet, and we were in Calgary in a bar sitting there and um, just kind of, you know, hanging out. And I had, at that point... I can't remember exactly. I think I had just published The Politics of Knives. I think I was touring through Calgary with The Politics of Knives, if I recall correctly. So it was not when I lived there, um, but when I was touring back there. And Derek noted, he said, you know, he goes, you've got a book, Ex Machina, he said, which in many ways, he, he, he said, I think is a book about books. He's like, and then you've got this book, Clockfire, which of course is a book about the theater. Um, now you've got this book of poems about, uh, you know, the politics of knives, which he said in many ways is about the film, about film as a medium, and you know the sort of violence and and film. Uh, and he said, I expect your next book, you know, should be about the visual arts, and uh, you know you should do a kind of round out the quadrilogy uh, or the tetralogy, I suppose, would be the actual. Um, quadrilogy is what the alien films are. If you, I have a DVD set upstairs. This is where I, that word came from. Quadrilogy doesn't exist. Um, the word is tetralogy. Um, but, of course, nobody knows the word tetralogy. So when they marketed the DVD of the first four alien films, the DVD set, they called it the quadrilogy. And uh, I always say that name in sort of a private jest. Uh, anyway, but uh, I was thinking what Derek had said. Uh, of course, there's other art forms, like music, for example. Maybe I have to write a book of poetry about music before I'm done with poetry. But um, I was thinking about that. It got in my head, and I thought uh, years and years and years ago, maybe, you know, I should have my next book about 
um, visual art in a certain way. Um, and that book has really evolved from that initial idea. It's a very kind of complicated book that in many ways is about being a dad uh, more than it is about visual art. Uh, but I think broadly speaking, it is about art and about poetry and about um, what they matter in the private you know, arena of your own life and what they matter in this public space. And uh, I, anyway, what Derek had said about visual art got in my head and this question of like, what does art matter in our lives and in our nation, um, especially in an age now when we, we still have nations, but I think we're very suspicious of nationalism even more so than maybe we might have been in the past. Um, I think that it's an interesting set of questions that kind of revolve around something iconic like the National Gallery of Canada. Um, so anyway, all this is a long way of saying, for some reason, the National Gallery did not buy the website, thenationalgallery.ca. Uh, I just was like Googling around for like website domains and just with the idea, oh, I wonder if, you know, there's anything like the nationalgallery.com, um, you know, available. Of course, that won't be available, I thought to myself. Um, and it wasn't, but the, for some reason, the nationalgallery.ca is available. So it's, it's the nationalgallery.ca. And if you go to the nationalgallery.ca, um, right now I just forwarded it to a page where you can get like information about the na my book. You can pre-order it if you like. Um, later on, though, I'll do something you know cool with that website address. So if you have ideas for what should be at the nationalgallery.ca, I just want to do something cool and weird to, I don't know, just to tie into the book somehow. I'll figure it out this summer. But right now you can go there if you like, as I say, you can go there, the nationalgallery.ca and find out you know, more about the book. But if you have ideas um, for what I sh could you know, do with that website, um, let me know. Send me an email. I'm jonathan at jonathanball.com. Um, jonathan at jonathanball.com. So um, that is my kind of question to you. What should I do with the nationalgallery.ca? Uh, now let's hear your questions for me. Uh, now the first question uh, comes from uh, Winnipeg writer uh, Carmelo Militano, and he asks, to eat or not eat chips is the question, especially ketchup chips. Now, you should, uh, chips are my 100% um, favorite food. I love chips. I'm obsessed with chips. Uh, if you know me well, you will, you know, know my chip obsession. You will have seen me eat a bag of chips most likely, um, or at least heard me talk about chips or whatever. So I could talk about chips all day. Um, of course you should eat chips, you know, to eat or not eat chips is the question. It's not really a question, Carmelo. You should eat chips. Chips are amazing. I could do without chocolate. I could quit sugar if I really needed to. You know, I could quit anything but chips. Ah, oh, man, I love chips. I love them so much. If I have them in my house, I'll eat them all. In fact, I just ate a, I just finished a bag of chips, you know, before I started recording this podcast. But, uh, so the second part of your question, Carmelo, to eat or not eat chips is the question, yes, eat chips. 
especially ketchup chips. I will say this. This is an unpopular opinion, especially amongst Canadians. I, the one type of chip, I don't like two types of chips, okay? There are two chip flavors that I've ever had that I did not like, two chips flavors of the common ones. So one is dill pickle chips. I do not like dill pickle chips, but I will eat them. You know, I don't like them at all. Honestly, this is how much I like chips. I like chips so much that I will eat chips that I don't like at all because they're chips. So if I'm at a party and there's like dill pickle chips there, like somebody else is eating the rest of the chips, it's only dill pickle chips, I'll stand by that dill pickle chips bowl and I'll like eat the dill pickle chips all night, but I don't like them. I, won't, I don't like one bite of the chips, but I love biting chips, so I'll just eat them. But ketchup chips, I won't touch. They're the only chip that I do not like. Ketchup chips. Hate them. I don't like ketchup, first off. I think ketchup is for the weak. Um, when I grew up, uh, I ate ketchup only when I was trying to smother the taste of some thing my, you know, my parents had cooked that I didn't like. That's sort of my association with ketchup from childhood. Is It was a thing I would put on food I didn't like. So when I you know grew up, I never liked ketchup. I do not like ketchup. Uh, I think it's disgusting. Um, nothing about it appeals to me. I think it's the best way to ruin a burger or a hot dog is to put ketchup on it. And the only way you can ruin chips for me is to put ketchup flavoring on them. Ketchup chips are the worst. I would rather not eat chips than eat ketchup chips. But every other chip I'll eat, including chips I don't actually like. So that's Carmelo Militano's question about, or double part question about chips. So my next question is from Dave Barber, who is uh, another Winnipegger. He is actually the programmer of the Winnipeg Cinematheque uh, and a sort of local, you know, legend in the arts scene here. And Dave Barber asks, why is Old Dutch the best chips? Well, so if you know old Dutch chips, uh, of course, there's different types of old Dutch chips now. Uh, but Dave, you know why old Dutch is the best chips. It's because they come in a cardboard box. They come in a cardboard box. That's why old Dutch is the best chips. They're not my favorite chips, I'll point out. Uh, I do think they are probably the best chips, honestly. Uh, and I do love them. But... Especially my one of my favorite chip flavors in of all time is the um, uh, onion and garlic old Dutch uh, chips, the non-ripple ones, like the kind of flat ones. Oh, man, they're so amazing. Although I don't like onions, but I do love that chip flavor. Um, but my favorite favorite chips of all time, if I had to like pick one chip to ever to eat for the rest of my life. Uh, I got to say my favorite chips are not Old Dutch, unfortunately, although they are, of course I love Old Dutch, you know, any sane person would. But my favorite chips are uh, Lay's brand, you know, just junk, junk food Lay's, um, specifically the sea salt and pepper chips. Sea salt and pepper Lay's are my absolute favorite. Probably right after that is my daughter's favorite chip. It's probably my second favorite chip, which is a Miss Vicky's. Um, again, like kind of a, a pepper, pepper chip, cracked pepper chip. 
um, I forget the precise term that they use in the Vicky's bag, but you know that kind of peppery flavor one is her her favorite. And again, it'd be my second favorite. Um, my third favorite chip is you know straight up Doritos. You know Doritos um, nacho cheese. And then down from there, it would probably be actually right above the Doritos nacho cheese would be Ruffles. Um, sour cream and bacon, which is a chip I loved from childhood. Now, I would take an old Dutch over, you know, those chips some days, uh, but old Dutch would be, like, right under my top, like, favorite chips. I also do, like, Pringles, sour cream and onion, I've got to say. I'm not a huge Pringles fan in terms of their other flavors. I like the plain. I like the sour cream and bake and, sorry, sour cream and onion. Um, but, you know, that's sort of my kind of ladder. Uh, so I do concede to you, Dave, that Old Dutch are probably the best chips, like if you were objectively looking at things. Um, subjectively, you know, I just have, they're not, they're in my top, you know, f 10 for sure. I would be a few different Old Dutch flavors. Um, but um, I didn't grow up in Winnipeg, so I don't have the emotional attachment to Old Dutch. But I do, of course, you know, remember and still have a fondness for the boxes. So I would say, uh, you know, if you're looking for a reason Old Dutch are the best chips, the boxes. Now, another question uh, from another Winnipegger. This is from Candace Jean Ball, who is actually not related to me, which is funny, <laughs> because I don't know uh, really anybody named Ball who is is related to me. It's kind of a weird quirk. Candice Jean Ball writes, um, why are Canadian ketchup chips superior to American? She, so that's her first question. She has two questions. Um, now, I'll just answer that first question to start with. Um, you know, Candice, I don't eat ketchup chips, so I can't answer that question. I'm sorry. But if I had to um, guess at the answer, why are Canadian chips, ketchup chips superior to American ketchup chips? Um, I would say that the brands are probably, um, again, Old Dutch, uh, being a sort of brand that I think we can all concede is pretty much amazing. I mean, they just obviously are making the best ketchup chip. You know, I think... I mean, I've had a few ketchup chips, and of course, they're making the best one. I just don't like ketchup chips, and I don't like their chips either. I still wouldn't eat them personally if I had a choice. Um, but I have eaten them under duress from time to time, and I will concede they are the better than American ketchup chips. I just think it's hard, you know? Like, Canadians care about their ketchup chips, and Americans don't. Not my thing, but, you know, I think that's the reason. And her second question that kind of is connected to this is a two-part question. Second question is, what lessons can Americans learn from Old Dutch? Well, again, the boxes are a big lesson. Uh, there's just something about getting a box of chips, and then inside there's two bags of chips. So it's like you buy one thing of chips, but you get two things of chips. It's just brilliant, you know. It's, uh, it's a great, you know, packaging setup. I just, you know, it, it was always Great problem of chips, of course, is you open a bag and, like, now that you've opened that bag, you eat them all. 
Old Dutch solved that problem. They got you get a box, you open the box, you eat one bag, and then you have another bag in the box still, sealed up, fresh, nice. They just figured out how to present the chip to you. And, you know, of course, they're good chips, but that was the thing. I think Americans, anytime you go to the States and you eat in a restaurant, they just give you too much food. Uh, and I think it's just part of that uh, whole zeitgeist, or whatever you want to call it, that whole just way of thinking. Um, old Dutch is the Canadian sort of way. Uh, maybe you know, less so now, but that Canada started to really do this in restaurants in the last few decades. But um, used to be, you know, they want to just overload your plate, and Old Dutch doesn't overload your palate. Now, uh, next we have a literary question. Helen Hajnowski, who is a uh, another writer who wrote a great... Um, She's read a number of books that are great, but I really like Poets and Killers. Uh, Poets and Killers, a really excellent book. Um, it kind of tells the story of a guy, uh, his from like birth to death, if I recall, but it, the entire, in, in poetry, but the poems were all constructed of advertisements that would, uh, that were in existence in, you know, that person, in that year. So in the year of his life, in that stage of his life. Here's the advertising language from that period. Um, really brilliant little fun book, Helen Hajnowski. She's really great. Her other books are good too, but that's the one I have a real fondness for. Helen Hajnowski writes, I have a literary question. What type of chips are the least likely to leave grease stains on books? Okay, um, I did some tests for you, Helen. And of course... I didn't need to do the test. I could have just thought through it in retrospect. But uh, chips that are least likely to leave grease stains on books are the baked chips. Not the fried ones, but the baked ones. So um, you want to, if you're concerned about your grease stains on your books, you want to go for oven-baked lays uh, and similar you know, kinds of oven-baked chips. In a pinch, if you, you know, can't find an oven-baked chip, or you just don't like oven-baked chips, uh, in a pinch, go with plain Pringles. Pringles are fried, but they're they're not really, like, cut. They're kind of made out of a weird pressed slurry <laughs> rather than, you know, it's, it's kind of an odd way they make Pringles. But um, as a result, they aren't as saturated, uh, although they are fried. They're not as oil-saturated as other types of chips. It, you know, if you're talking, of course, about the plain Pringles that don't have... Uh, coating on them. Pringles is really bad for getting the coating all you know, like uneven and thick and so on. So if it's got coating, stay away from Pringles. Um, generally speaking, you know, that's a good thing if you're talking about the books. But baked chips, like oven-baked Lay's, would be my number one pick for that. Uh, keep your books free of grease stains. Number two would be original uh, plain Pringles. Now, let's get off the chips for a second. They're not all questions about chips. I know what you're thinking. They're not all about chips. We're going to kind of move into some other questions now. I just wanted to front load it with the chips because they are kind of the most important things. The topic people are asking me the most about is chips. But Doug MacArthur has a uh, question. Uh, Doug, by the way, and I used to share an office at the University of Winnipeg. I ran, I started a magazine at the University of Winnipeg that um, is kind of, I basically 
they were putting an ad in the Eastern Body Council, had an ad for a guy to come in and um, run their newsletter. They kind of like were publishing a little newsletter every now and again. And I went to the job interview and said, look, a newsletter is a stupid idea. Um, people want newsletters, they'll go to your website. You can update the information on there quicker and, you know, more frequently and so on. Or you can even, you know, get them on an email list or something. Like, it's an idiotic idea to run a newsletter. I'm like, what you should do instead is let me take the budget. And instead of printing a newsletter every, you know, two, three weeks or whatever, I'll just, like, once or twice a year, I'll publish a literary magazine. Uh, and they um, basically agreed to it as a short story. Um, eventually that thing, I, it was, I, was call, I call it the maelstrom. Uh, because I had a dream where I had written a book uh, and I was reading the book in the dream. So in the dream, it was I had a stack of manuscript pages and I was just reading this manuscript I had written, you know, and um, in the dream. And it was amazing. I it was like, this is amazing. It's the best thing I've ever written. It's incredible. And I was just reading it page after page in the dream. And I thought to myself, oh my God, I was aware it was a dream. I thought to myself, oh my God, I just have to wake up and like write this down and it will be amazing. It's an amazing book. And so I woke up and I grabbed like, I struggled and I like, grabbed a piece of paper and I wrote down something. I was like, I should write a little bit and then I'll remember in the morning because I gotta go back to sleep. So, so I wrote something down and I went back to sleep. When I woke up again in the morning, I remembered all this. I remembered that I had had this dream and everything. And I thought, oh, I've got that piece of paper. As soon as I look at this paper and see what I've written on it, I'll, it'll all flash back to me. And I'll just sit down and, you know, transcribe out this dream novel I wrote. I picked up the piece of paper and I turned it over and it said, Maelstrom. That's all it said. Just the word Maelstrom. And I looked at it and it triggered no memories, no associations, nothing. I looked up the word in the dictionary just in case there was some weird secondary meeting I didn't know or something and uh, thinking, well, maybe this unlock it. Nope. No clue why I wrote Maelstrom down. Don't know what um, that book was all about in my dream. Nothing. In any case, uh, I decided to call this journal that I made the Maelstrom, and Doug was my office mate, and we you know, worked on the Maelstrom together. Eventually, it became a real literary publication. John Stinsey, um, who is another writer, um, was running it for a while. At this point, they've transitioned it over to the Arts Tribune, they call it. They changed the name, and it's called the Arts Tribune. Um, but you know, it is still really the Maelstrom, uh, this you know, literary magazine that I started when I was, it's not now a professional publication. When I was doing it, I literally was like stapling saddle stitching and stapling like a zine together. It's pretty kind of funny. Anyway, Doug has two questions. So his first question is, where do lost socks go? Uh, well, there are a lot of theories about lost socks, Doug. If you're talking about the lost socks in the dryer, um, of course, there's a lot of you know theories about that. You can look online and find you know where people think. A lot of people believe they get sucked into vents or into um, you know different you know ducts and chambers uh, connected to the dryer. My belief is that they never make it into the dryer. You just think they're in the dryer, but they're not. But you've lost them around the house or um, thrown them out, and forgotten about them, and so on and so forth. But um, 
of course, those are all just theories. Uh, and, you know, everybody's got a different idea about where lost socks go. Um, but I've got the real answer. Heaven. And Doug has another question. Uh, Doug MacArthur also asks, is a hot dog a sandwich? Well, uh, Doug, you may think the hot dog is a sandwich, and there's a good argument to be made that the hot dog is a sandwich. I would say no, a hot dog is not a sandwich because the bun is one piece uh, rather than two pieces. So your bread is basically it's like making a sa an open face sandwich. Like a hot dog, you could argue, is a variant of an open face sandwich. Um, but I would instead go with what the National Hot Dog and Sausage Council say. The, there was an official press release um, sent out from the National Hot Dog and Sausage Council. This is a real thing. And it declared that the hot dog is not a sandwich. Uh, and according to the council, quote, uh, their verdict is that a hot dog is an exclamation of joy, a food, a verb describing showing off, and even an emoji. It is truly a category unto its own, end quote. Uh, so I would agree with that. Uh, and I would also quibble that open-faced sandwiches are not sandwiches, and hot dogs are not sandwiches. I'm going to have another sip of my whiskey here uh, as I, you know, scroll down and try to find a new question for you. Hmm. Daryl Wetter has a question. Daryl Wetter is a poet who wrote a book about using about pornography, you know, these really great little um, if poems um, to, like an ode to the various, you know, uh, pornographic materials and so on. Really interesting book. Um, if I'm recalling correctly, uh, unless I'm mixing the name up, I'm pretty sure that was Daryl Wetter. And uh, he has a great question. This is, you know, this is a more more serious, more literary question. Well, still, I guess, you know, same level of seriousness. You know, these are serious questions, the chips questions, the hot dog questions, and so on. These aren't, you know, these are things people need to know. But here's the question. In literary fiction... Literary fiction, how interchangeable are plot and character? Uh, you know, Daryl, this is a hard question to answer, but I would go to the technical answer. You know, how interchangeable are plot and character? Well, so let me just, you know, first note for people who may not be familiar, like the root of this question there is an argument that various literary theorists slash narrative, uh, narratologists, uh, people who study stories um, or who write about how to write, uh, you know, craft and so on, uh, there's an argument to be made or that is sometimes made that plot and character are somewhat interchangeable. Uh, for example, the character, um, you know, takes actions and those actions reveal that person's character. That's how you build a character. You know, you show us their actions. Um, of course, their thoughts and their words come into play, but the argument goes that their actions tell us, you know, truly who they are. 
under duress. And then, of course, there is the same argument made for plot. A plot is, you know, you taking your characters, putting them under duress, seeing what they do. Um, it's this causal chain of events, um, and it's driven by characters. So you, different arguments exist about whether or not characters of plot are distinct or fundamentally intermingled and the same. Uh, and a lot of these arguments, of course, uh, come, you know, connect to whether or not we should uh, distinguish between genre fiction and literary fiction. Uh, my argument would be that literary fiction is a genre. It's a sort of Joyce in its modern form. It's sort of, in many respects, stem, comes from Joyce, uh, but um, it's just as a, you know, a, a genre that prioritizes uh, internal conflict rather than, say, external conflict, which, you know, so-called commercial genre works tend to emphasize instead. But uh, putting all that stuff aside, I would argue that uh, they are distinct. And the reason is that, uh, you know, they're somewhat, they're partly interchangeable, but also partly distinct. And the reason I would argue is that is, you know, I'm a really a formalist and I feel I'm very much a technician. That's how I like to think about myself as a writer. Um, I'm perhaps not a great writer uh, in some respects, but I'm a technician. I can tell you what I'm doing. I can do it. You know, I can take the thing apart. I can explain to you what I'm doing um, in a way that is clinical. Um, I try to be mindful of that when I write and to still kind of, you know, be emotive and visceral because I think... You know, I can potentially move away from that and get too cold and clinical and technical if I were um, not paying attention to what I was doing. But I would go right down to brass tacks and, you know, remind you that, uh, you know, there's there's different arguments with this, but I think broadly speaking, it's true that you have five narrative modes. Uh, what I mean by that is, you know, broadly speaking, uh, it's, you know, somewhat accepted and I think it is you know true to a degree that there's really only five things you can write in fiction five things you can write you can write action you know characters are doing things things you know happen objects happen you know you can write dialogue you can write thought you can write description you can write exposition, which we sometimes think of as, you know, pure, pure narration. But if there's five narrative modes, roughly, you, you know, action, dialogue, thought, description, exposition, those are the things you can write. Um, plot and character are not a thing you can write. Like, they're an outgrowth of you having written those things, right? So a character is the sum of their action their dialogue, their thought, and their ex and then descriptions. Exposition does not connect to character, right? Um, you know, generally speaking. Whereas a plot is the sum of the action, uh, to some degree, the dialogue, and the exposition. A thought, a character's thought, uh, does not really connect a plot. Description does not really connect a plot. 
So uh, action and dialogue is where plot and character overlap. Uh, and then, you know, we continue to build character with thought and description. We continue to build the plot through exposition. So I would say they're not interchangeable, but there is, you know, uh, a great, uh, you know, half of it, if not more than half of it, uh, is the same thing. George Tolles asked a question. George Tolles was my um, master's, it was the first professor um, that I really loved at university. I had other professors I really liked a lot. Um, he was the first professor I, you know, just really um, got me interested in doing the things that I, you know, kind of went on to do. And he was extremely um, passionate and encouraging of my writing. Um, so George, you know, if you're listening to this, uh, you know, thank you. You're my favorite professor in university. And, and just a great, you know, very supportive uh, person, uh, in my life, and George uh, is a film professor at the University of Manitoba, but he also uh, is a writer himself, uh, and he's best known as the uh, screenwriter of a Guy Madden's a number of Guy Madden's movies. Uh, although he uh, just published a book on Paul Thomas Anderson, which is uh, really great, I encourage you to get hold of if you know you have any interest in Paul Thomas Anderson George you know wrote the book on him um, George Tolles uh, but otherwise you know again he's he's written other screenplays you know but um, he's best known probably for writing with slash for uh, Guy Madden director Guy Madden um, and George asks a somewhat mournful question uh, why don't movies matter anymore why don't movies matter anymore I think that what uh, George is asking here is, you know, why don't they matter the way they used to in the cultural conversation? Um, so if I misunderstand your question, uh, I apologize, George, but I think that's what you're after is, you know, that movies used to really be a, a part of the cultural conversation. I mean, books used to be, of course, uh, massive part of the cultural conversation and then it kind of shifted to movies in many respects and now it's you know moved on right it's moved on in many ways to television uh, rather than movies and you could even argue uh, i think make a good argument that it's moved uh, on to games in many respects um but i would say i think that movies still matter in a certain ways but maybe the wrong movies matter. Um, not to denigrate popular movies by any means necessarily. I mean, some of them are you know quite excellent on certain terms or on their own terms. Uh, but broadly speaking, I would say that. I mean, George, you could probably tell me <laughs> better than I could. I'm going to speculate a little bit here because I'm not a, a scholar of this. Uh, the way that maybe you or somebody else would be. Um, but I would say there's sort of two things that added together uh, have caused a problem. I would say that one, you have a ten trend towards tentpole franchises, right? These massive, you know, $100 million plus movies. 
um, I think that that you know are designed to be franchises. Uh, I think that trend uh, has been damaging, and it is an outcome I think of a different trend, which is the trend towards media fragmentation. Uh, the fact that I like to say that there's no mainstream anymore. It used to be when I was in school, you know, that there was a mainstream and then there was a counterculture, right? I don't think that's really the truth anymore. Uh, I don't think that the mainstream exists in the same way that it ever, that it, that it used to. And, and what I mean by that is just, um, we don't all do the same things anymore. Like it used to be that you could count on common knowledge. Like when I teach classes, I find this a big problem actually. Um, it used to be I could walk into a classroom and assume that everybody had a certain level of common knowledge. They all knew who Hitler was. They all knew what the Cold War was in a basic way. They all knew, um, you know, who Adam and Eve were, right? They all knew this same handful of things. Maybe it wasn't a you know, large amount of things, you'd have to explain a lot of things. But now, um, because of, you know, uh, media fragmentation, you know, when I grew up also, keep in mind, like there were like three TV channels or something, like, you know, it was not the same world. Um, and of course, you know, you've also got uh, an increasing globalization in the last, you know, number of years. I think anyway, in case you've had this media fragmentation where we don't have, all have common knowledge, uh, and to break, to deal with that requires a massive marketing budget. Um, and I think that this uh, has caused to some degree the trend towards these tentpole franchises. I think what has happened as a result of those two th factors is it's all but eliminated middle range budgets. So you're sort of, you know, $40 million movie. I don't know if it really exists in the same way it used to, or $30 million movie, $20 million movies. Uh, I don't feel like that category um, is as large as it was. Um, and it certainly is not, you know, your $10 million movies, you know, are, are virtually non-existent as I understand it to me. Maybe you can correct me on this. I haven't looked this up statistically, and I, I may be wrong about these things. But I feel like that sort of spot between like 10 to 50 million, nobody's making movies in those spots anymore, from what I understand. And so you have you know, these massive, I think once you're over like 50 million or, you know, you're in the like 80, 100, 200, 300 million dollar movies, they, you know, you can't take creative risks at that point. Uh, I don't feel like, I mean, those movies sometimes do take creative risks, but it's very difficult, right? And you can understand why. Um, on the other side of the scale, uh, the smaller kind of independent studios with the smaller budgets, that maybe are doing, um, you know, maybe can, on another level, may seem positioned to take a lot of risks, but I think, you know, are also in this, for the, the wrong other side of the problem, they're not spending a ton of money, but that's all the money they've got to spend. You know, again, even those movies, to get a real exposure, require, um, I mean, even those movies tend to be risk-averse as, you know, at least, you know, in some cases. Um, and when they're not risk-averse, when they are very risky, again, they still require these massive marketing budgets, you know, and it's not unusual, I don't think, anymore for an independent film to just, n despite the fact that there's so much distribution it could get, 
basically not be able to acquire a meaningful distribution. Um, I was just talking to a guy, uh, I won't say who he is, um, or give enough information to identify him because he was, you know, having a problem. But he's, you know, a screenwriter who's got some hits behind him, you know, mild, you know, independent kind of hits in the horror film uh, world behind him. He's got a director who actually is like a, like well, one of the large, well-known directors in Canada um, who's had, again, you know, great storied career, books written about his work and so on. Uh, he's got stars, you know, uh, okay, but they're not A-listers, right? Like, but like, you know, but recognizable actors with cult followings and multiple ones and so on. It's got a, you know, film is done, shot in the can, cut together, touring festivals, st still having problems with getting distribution. Um, and of course, you know, there's options now that there never used to be in terms of distribution, but as you know, George, like the uh, getting people to, into the theater is the big problem. You know, in some ways, it's harder than making these movies. And I always used to say back in the day when Telefilm had decided they were going to start their star system. Ugh, I don't know where the, I, I once had an argument with Telefilm or with a guy at Telefilm. I, I forget his name now, but. At that time, uh, I don't know what Telefilm's at with this at the moment. They seem to have shifted around in their thinking. But at the time, Telefilm had kind of announced they were going to try to build a star system. In Canada, that was you know, the big problem. You know, These movies didn't have stars. You know, how, we're going to build our own star system. And I remember talking to this guy and saying, like, you can't build a star system in Canada. Any star will just move to the States. Like, why would they? Why wouldn't they? Um, and uh, at the time, they were very focused on, you know, trying to, again, move the budgets up to get larger stars and so on and do fewer movies and so on. And I had been making the argument to this guy that it should really, like, give guys like, you know, George Tolls and Guy Madden more money because these are the movies that kind of travel outside the country, although maybe, you know, not in the doing the numbers that they would like to do. Uh, but in any case... Long story short, I think the problem is a marketing problem. Um, I don't think it's that. I think that movies not mattering anymore in the cultural conversation is a material effect of shifts in the industry. I don't think it has much to do with the films themselves or even with the um, cultural interest in films. Uh, and so for this reason, I'm hopeful that you know, you'll have some future shifts that'll just bring movies back into the cultural attention. I don't think it's the fault of the movies in many respects is what I'm trying to say. I think it's this sort of industry um, shifts that have made it harder for even a large film with the big money to get attention. Uh, and I think it's not a case necessarily of the culture being unwilling um, to pay attention to these movies. I think it's just a matter of you just don't have the numbers of people uh, watching the same movie anymore. And once that can shift around again, um, which I think it you know easily could, uh, if we just get you know the distribution figured out and the marketing figured out in the industry, like a more effective way to do that, um, you know, I, I don't see why movies can't matter more. I don't think it's a permanent uh, state of affairs. But, 
you know, that's my uneducated, you know, guess on the matter. And, um, you know, you may be, be listening to my rant and thinking of all the holes in it, uh, since you know more about the topic than I do. But I don't think it's a permanent shift, and I don't think it is um, necessarily indicative of f- film as a medium, uh, or, or I should say movies as a form being undervalued, uh, so much as just, you know, other things are, you know, television and games are eclipsing them at the moment, just like, you know, books, uh, in many respects, statistically are starting to make a bit of a rise. I got another question from Candace Jean Ball, which kind of ties into, she had, you know, she, she has some questions above that, this kind of ties into George's question a little bit. Uh, maybe this is the real answer to your question, George. You know, Cashin Ball asks, "How do you write for the dig- digital attention span?" Um, now, the digital attention span is something that I think is in some ways understated and in other ways overstated. Um, so, I read a book recently called "Digital Minimalism" by um, Cal Newport. Um, it's not as good as his previous books, and it's kind of an interesting idea. He, you know, Newport sort of suggests this thing called a digital detox. Well, he doesn't call it digital detox, but he suggests a thing like a digital detox. And um, anyway, you can look up digital minimalism and Cal Newport if you want. I'll link to all of these things in the show notes, by the way. You know, a lot of this stuff. But um, writingtherongway.com, you can go and you find links to these books and other things that I mentioned. But, uh, and of course, you know, people ask me questions if they have websites or something, I'll direct you to them. Um, but the digital attention span, I think, it gets a lot of attention in a negative manner. I think there's obviously negative aspects to it. But I also look at like binge watching. Uh, so, for example, when I was thinking of George's question, my initial response was, well, people don't have the attention span for movies anymore. Um, but then I thought more about it. It's like, well, people watch 20 hours of Game of Thrones in a sitting. I don't think that it's necessarily the case that they don't have the attention span for a movie anymore. Uh, although there's maybe something we said for the inability to sit still and like cut everything else off. Because uh, when you watch television, of course, it's a very distracted, um, non-immersive form of watching often. Even people are binging things. I think, you know, they're also doing other stuff at the same time. You know, they're live tweeting it and so on. So I think like, one issue is the digital attention span in terms of the movie question. But I think in a broader sense, I mean, you have like, um, I find this digital attention span to be a real problem in certain respects. But in other ways, you could argue for various strengths of it. Kenneth Goldsmith has a book called, um, I was blanking on the name of the book. It's over there. Um, I should just walk over and look at it, I guess. But um, Wasting Time on the Internet, that's what it's called. Kenneth Goldsmith, Wasting Time on the Internet, uh, is a set of essays um, about this very topic in a positive light. Uh, I think, you know, maybe too positive. But if you kind of take The Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport and read that book, and then you take Kenneth Goldsmith's Wasting Time on the Internet and read that book, um, somewhere in between them is maybe where I might position myself. But uh, 
Goldsmith, you know, writes a lot about this digital attention span, this digital um, sort of method of thinking in terms of how it plays into reading and composition, uh, you know, as a writer. Uh, and it gets very much into some of the different, you know, examples and different forms and different uh, kind of experimental approaches that you know, writers have taken uh, to you know, dealing with this very question. So, Candice, when I, when I see you next, I'll give you actually a copy of that book because uh, I don't think I'm going to read it again. It's a very good book, but I don't know if I'll read it again. So I'll just give you my copy because I'm trying to get rid of books. I'm, I'm like trying to get rid of like 100 books or something. I just got way too many books right now. But anyway, um, uh, my answer, I guess, in short would be go read Kenneth Goldsmith's uh, Wasting Time on the Internet and you'll see... Um, you know, there's like a hundred and some ways you can, I think at the end he actually includes a list of like a hundred ways to write for the digital attention span. My personal answer though, like if you're asking me, like what do I do? How do I write for the digital attention span? I would say I write short. You know, I write short poems, I write short scenes and stories. Um, I write short stories, you know, when I'm working on, I'm working on some big uh, kind of novel projects right now i just today actually got a grant to finish a novel project um but even so my, my chapters are short um my scenes are short um i jump around from uh thing to thing a lot uh, i don't think it's necessary to do that i just find that you know what i want to do is focus on a clear tension or a conflict and escalate it so i do that in poetry i do that in fiction I try to find the clearest um, tension or conflict and then take it and escalate it and complicate it. Um, so my sort of thing is I want to like hook a person in a sort of visceral manner and then I want to just move the tension. I want to just increase the tension and increase the conflict. Um, and I don't mean necessarily in terms of like plot development uh, so much as like on a formal level. Like if you're reading a poem that I've written, I want to just start with a sort of interesting idea that's going to, where it's going to be like a contrast or a tension. And then I just want to like take that and just keep increasing it and complicating it. Um, so it's kind of hard to explain, but I think the answer in some ways is to grab the attention and then work to hold it. You grab the attention with a contrast, an attention, a conflict. Uh, even if it's just an abstract, you know, a set of tensions, like a, or a formal tension. Um, so I did in my, the first book of the first line of my new book, uh, the National Gallery. The first line of the first poem is this: "Everyone in this poem is harmed." And, and I think like that's a line that interestingly just it kind of grabs attention. Um, I, I and kind of presents a weird sort of contrast of ideas. Um, one, it presents the idea of like everybody in this. It's sort of a reverse of, of course, the you know a, no animals in this movie were harmed. No animals were harmed in the making of this movie. Um, so I'm kind of swinging in with like everyone in this poem, as if you know the poem had a cast of characters was harmed. Um, all the animals that neared the poem were poisoned, is the second line. 
uh, again, taking off on that kind of familiar uh, warning or, or rather disclaimer. So I'm kind of opening the book with a disclaimer, but a sort of weird negative disclaimer, right? That's what I mean by attention. Uh, it's just sort of a thing you're just going to immediately kind of throw you off balance a little bit. I try to just do that and then just keep moving upwards with it, keep throwing you further off balance, uh, keep kind of taking the idea and increasing the tension of it or the strangeness of it. Um, you know, I write pretty unusual, strange stuff in many respects, but I try to use uh, pretty um, straightforward techniques in terms of... I, I, what I like to say I do is I write stranger fiction. And what I mean by that is... Um, even if I'm writing poetry, I think of it sometimes in these fiction terms. Um, I try to take, uh, I take kind of avant-garde or experimental uh, techniques and I apply them to genre content. So if I'm writing a short story, like I might write a horror story, you know, with some sort of, you know, but I'll take this kind of experimental, you know, technique or approach, uh, so it's my way of sort of subverting and revitalizing some of the maybe otherwise tired genre approaches. Um, and in poetry, again, I'll take like a very kind of conventional idea, like a lyrical confession. And I'll just try to subvert, you know, the certain aspects of it on a technical level. I think that's my answer to how to write for the digital attention span. I just took... You know, just grab that attention as quickly as possible, you know, from the first line of a poem or the first, you know, few lines of a story. I always want that really conventional uh, opening hook. Uh, and then I want to just, I feel like as long as you hook them, uh, the reader, and you just escalate upwards, you can do anything else. I don't think you need anything in a story or in a poem other than escalation. I think everything else is optional. And escalation is the rule. So, that said, I'm not the most popular writer. <laughs> so, you know, take with a grain of salt. Like, uh, you know, I'm doing pretty unusual stuff that isn't necessarily uh, easy to market. Marketing it is another question, right? Maybe ask Rupi Carr what she does to write for the digital attention span. You know, again, the answer to some degree is you write short. And I have one last question. Uh, for you before I finish my whiskey and go to bed. One last question from Jean-Luc Baudry, who I, we like to call Frenchy around these parts. Jean-Luc Baudry asks, should Pringles come in a flat box instead of a boner-shaped can? No. <laughs>